I'm here with John Buckman, who is the CEO and founder of Decent Espresso, and uh, who is bringing in a new era of a new paradigm of espresso making. And I'm really excited to talk to him. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you. Uh, so. Uh, I feature sort of guests from all over different domains, and I usually ask uh, about their coffee habits to start off, but that's a much different sort of question for somebody like you or Jonathan Gagne. But um, I sort of wanted to take that and see uh, just what your, uh, I guess, like day-to-day, -day, weekly sort of uh, coffee drinking habits are like. And, you know, feel free to speak at whatever high level you want. Um, if people don't understand terminology, they're you know, more than welcome to look it up. Okay. Uh, I was going to answer it pretty basically, which is um, <clears throat> well, first thing you learn about eating the coffee business is pacing yourself. And mm -hmm. it's, it's no fun getting sick on caffeine. And uh, I remember being in LA and I think we couldn't dial in the coffee and Scott within 30 minutes was lying moaning on the couch. <laughs> like, don't do that. Um, so uh, most of the time, I'm just two coffees a day, just in the morning and the afternoon, and that's it. Uh, part of it also is I view coffee like, say, play, playing the violin. It takes a while to just not make it sound bad. Mm -hmm. Just when you espresso, it mostly tastes bad, and then you're, it's not bad anymore, but it's going to take a long time to play the violin well. Um, and in order to avoid being frustrated, just have a multi-year outlook on it. So as I'm trying to learn something, let's say puck prep, I don't try and figure it out in a week. Uh, I, it's actually every year I get better at it, um, which is kind of surprising. So that's my biggest sort of self-discipline thing is that whenever I encounter anything hard, I just try to very slowly move it, uh, especially if it's anything to do with taste because you get taste saturated very quickly. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell between a good shot and a bad shot. Uh, that being said, when trade shows were a thing, I actually tasted every single shot. Um, just like tiny little sip. Mm -hmm. But every single shot, I would have someone else taste. And it was probably like 200 of them in a day. That's uh, a lot. I, I'd have a little sip. I mean, if, if it smelled terrible, I would throw it out and not have them taste it. Um, so we're pretty lucky here because Hong Kong is very outward facing. So uh, this guy named Kapo Chu who opened up a cafe about 10 years ago um, and he's twice I think number actually number two and number three world roasted champion and um, and so there's been a really uh, people from his place have gone and spawned other places a place called Amber that I like a lot <laughs> when tourism happens again. Um, I go to a place called Espresso Alchemy most mornings that makes an extremely competent shot, despite the fact that it's on a La Marzocco machine. Just teasing. <laughs> um, and um, though actually, it's super interesting also to see the challenges they face. Like there are some days where it's really quite acidic and I, I tell them and they go, okay. And then they, they're like 10 minutes and then they do fix it. So one of the things I've learned also about coffee, well, myself personally, is that things go wrong a little too easily. And if you don't, don't have an expert around or you haven't built that expertise, um, it's quite hard to, to bring bad coffee back to good. And so um, I know that you personally, uh, on your own machines, you do a variety of shots, like mostly the Allanger, the Blooming Espresso, and these sort of standard shots. And I'm curious, um, what 
sort of percentage is like how how would you divvy that up in terms of uh, your drinking? So uh, morning for me is always a milky drink, and um, I, I'm one of those people that thinks coffee should have a chocolate anchor somewhere. Uh, and there are plenty of people who don't, but that's my own personal preference. So I tend to go medium, medium light. Um, I, I call it chocolate plus. So chocolate with some red wine or some fruits or some flowery notes or whatever. But, uh, and when I, when I uh, need to drink a, a light roast, and it's largely, I, I do that because I need to understand what other people like. I make a, a tool for making coffee. Um, then I really try to, well, many years, I try to focus on reducing acidity. Because I, years ago, went to Portland before I had this and did a coffee tour and everything tasted like clarified lemon juice. Mm -hmm. And clarified lemon juice and asparagus were, were the dominant flavors I got. And it was only later that I realized that was actually not what they intended. Yeah. So uh, for a long time, Scott, well, actually, anyone who was an expert who would meet me would look down on my coffee tastes. And they definitely trended toward darker, medium dark originally. Um, and they've gotten lighter as I've been able to dial those shots in and make them taste really balanced. <clears throat> um, so the, my go-to shot is something called a Londinium shot. That's what I do in the morning. And the, what that shot look, looks like is a normal espresso puts water in and you wait some time and then the pressure rises. The innovation that Rayo had with the blooming was to do uh, a pre-infusion that put the known amount of water in and then pushed for a certain amount of time. And then that water, there's not too much water afterwards. And what that did is it caused a very even pre-infusion because it's a combination of capillary action and pressure to try and diffuse the water in the puck. So the Londinium shot is one done by one of the customers, uh, Damien Brakel, and he, I don't think he's got the theoretical foundation or theoretical leaning I have. He made this, I think initially, because he was copying the Londinium or what he thought he was doing. Um, but then he twiddled with it until it tasted great. Um, so his shot is essentially, it's, it's kind of interesting. He dumps the known amount of water and then he holds three bars for about 15 seconds and then rises and does a proper espresso. So it's got some conditions in there if, um, if things last too long or um, go too fast. And it seems to be the best I have found at getting me plus in chocolate plus. Um, it turns out with the medium or medium light being pretty easy to get chocolate. Uh, it's, it's getting those other flavors without bringing unpleasant stuff. Then the Allonger I really like because um, give me something that's ultra light, like maybe not, not even caramel, like caramelization flavors at all. Uh, and a traditional espresso is just super unpleasant. I mean, you just try to make, make it not unpleasant with those beans. And the Allonger allowed me to make these super fruity, um, very low acidity, but also very low body things, which I don't mind because espresso um, concentration is just too high. I, I felt bad for many years because I dilute my, my espressos when I'm tasting, when I'm doing, I'm trying to dial something in. I always add water in. Otherwise, I can't, I can't taste it. It just blows my tongue out. Uh, I was quite surprised to find that Rayo does the same thing. The other thing I do is I let it cool. 
because I think if your espresso tastes bad when it's cool, it's because your espresso tastes bad. Yeah, I tend to agree. And um, yeah, I, I do the same thing with the water and I've definitely had people uh, sort of scoff at me for that, which is interesting because I mean, it's, you know, opening the flavors so much and like in like scotch tasting people tend to add all the spring water and so thought that it would be so frowned upon in coffee but, um so I, I watched your presentation uh coffee without java and uh you know for those who haven't seen it this is like a sort of technical presentation for uh more like it and uh, programming types and i thought this was really interesting and one of the things that you said was uh basically there was no feedback and no control and this made me think of like cybernetic theory and that type of thing. And so I was curious uh, what your sort of intellectual influences are outside of coffee, like what, what your uh, media consumption is for intellectual stuff. I, well, first thing I should say is I was gonna be a philosophy teacher. So I tend to over-intellectualize coffee. And I, I went and got a master's degree in, in German philosophy. And uh, so that's one side I'm, I'm I don't want to bore people listening to this, but what I will say is I'm super interested in usability and usability theory. Uh, Jacob Nielsen and people like that. And uh, also, uh, well, I'm friends with Ted Nelson who invented this thing called Xanadu. Um, and he's one of the precursors to the internet. He's considered for having invented hypertext. And he's got a whole philosophy behind how technical decisions have societal ramifications. And, um, and so, for example, he rants a lot about how hypertext is only one direction. And in his invention, it was bidirectional. So if you link to a page, it would be possible on that page to see who links to you. Uh, and he was trying to make it more democratic. So how does that apply to a tool like Decent Espresso that's software driven? Well, when I designed this espresso machine interface, the tablet software, um, I knew that I was creating a new tool for thinking about espresso. And what I mean by that is that everybody who's walked up to an espresso machine until the decent espresso machine has had a few pieces of data. They can see the coffee um, and they've had a boiler temperature and they've had a false reading of pressure that always says nine bar unless they have a lever. Um, and that's pretty much it. They have a timer. Right? Uh, and so when I was, for example, I heard about Slayer shots and I, I would ask people who make them, how do you dial it in? How do you think about it? And I would find that they, they don't think about it. They, um, it's very, very intuitive what they were doing. Now they might try some things, but there was no scientific method to it. Uh, so how, how I think about technology applies to the decent is I wanted the decent to be a, a scientific measurement tool, a scientific tool by which people would actually start to think about espresso differently and make new discoveries. And so when I first made the espresso machine and I was the only one with one, I shouldn't say I made it, when we had the espresso machine, there's a whole bunch of us. Uh, but when I first had the espresso machine and I'm making a lot of coffee with it, I came out with more innovations than probably anyone else in terms of here's what I've learned, here's you know, this compression thing, this, 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 and it's like, wow, John is a world leading amazing coffee guy. No, it's just the guy who has this tool no one else has. And, and I was a bit frustrated that people thought that what was special about Decent was that John might be a genius. And that's seriously not the case. Um, it's just that John had a tool before everyone else. And what's changed in the last, especially year, and I'm really pleased about it, is 
um, two things. One is the machine is now far and wide in lots of people's hands. Uh, and secondly, we've changed the vocabulary, at least among people who have the machine. And so things like controlling flow rate uh, into the coffee puck and measuring it into the coffee uh, cup itself, measuring uh, temperature and flow rates and looking up you know, how flow rates speed up or slow down. Those are all just normal things to talk about now. And what's happened then is um, other people have made much more significant discoveries in espresso than I have. Uh, Londinium shot, for example, being an example, like I have a pretty strong intellectual foundation as to why that shot is fantastic. And probably it's, it's probably the best expression of the Libra shot that you can do. Um, but it was Rayo who had the Allonger shot 20 years ago. Um, and um, Blooming was his as well. Most recently, Gagne with his conditional espresso that um, changes the flow rate based on the grind. Um, we have some people who, right now the cutting edge in Deason is trying to understand puck resistance and what that means. And so we have several different functions for that. Uh, and I don't think we're there yet. Um, I also feel that temperature and especially the temperature during the extraction is poorly understood. And since the DC does that quite well, in other words, we, we can nail temperatures quickly and accurately, I feel like there's a lot of discovery to be had there. Mm -hmm. So if you tell me that your coffee tastes like so-and-so and you're at a certain temperature, I'd like to, but I can't. It'll tell you what to do with the temperature. Um, I've tried to push things a little bit. My standard recipes now have a two centigrade bump at the beginning. So if you do a 94 centigrade shot, it goes to 90, 94 and then now to 92. Uh, not that I know that, that tastes best, but I, it's me being kind of agent provocateur to try and get people to say, oh, there's this tool here. Um, so, um, and then the other thing is, is that all the software programs I've written have uh, um, always meant to be expanded. Um, there's um, an American writer named Stuart Brand. He's an ecologist. Uh, he wrote a really um, good book uh, mm -hmm. called How Buildings Learn. And the central theory behind that is that whenever you make a building, it will change over time. And buildings that are against change tend to fail. And uh, they tend to expand. And my feeling is the same exact thing applies to software that software will expand and change over time. And a software program that comes out too highly evolved for its use initially will actually fail. So from the very beginning, the decent app had skins uh, and that's where a lot of extensions had, came in. It had recipes that you could dial in. And just yesterday, uh, Joanna, who's one of, the, one of the customers, one of the, the main open source contributors, um, she finished a API that we've been discussing because people have been doing extensions. Um, and, and that's another big set of openness that I want. So, <clears throat> so there you go. That's, that's a whole lot in <laughs> books quite different than other, other coffee machines because coffee machines, espresso machines are finished when you buy them. And this is the first espresso machine that's unfinished. 
Yeah, and I love the, the term that you used in the, the presentation, future-proofing. Um, and I feel like I might be familiar with a, a brand from like the long now and like the edge questions. Is that uh, cool? Awesome. Um, yeah. Well, um, so this other thing that I was thinking about basically is, um, you know, you have this like forum uh, diaspora and um, it's a fairly insular community of, you know, people that have decence. And uh, then there's like the public world. So there's like this private and public sort of espresso. And I think that sometimes they can sort of be in symbiosis, like, you know, in terms of like Andy Schechter being a home barista, bringing the PID in. Um, and I feel like maybe the public has less to offer the private, but I'm wondering uh, what you would like to see, like how you would like to see those two synergize and like what the more public facing espresso people could uh, do to help you? So there's a couple of reasons why I made diaspora private. First of all, there's just a question of language. And by that, I mean that unless you have a decent, you're just missing certain words in your vocabulary, unless you have a super hacked home machine and you know there's like 30 of them so when people say oh I made an allonge on my GS3 I'm pretty dubious because they don't have the measurement tools to know that they actually did they're, they're guessing they did but I people have, have done that and I actually you know I, I have them we actually run the numbers and it looks like oh actually you're running a three bar shot in 22 seconds, you're actually just making a gusher. That, that is actually not an allonge. So that's the first problem is that without some basic measurements that we take for granted, you can't even enter in the conversation about espresso. Uh, and, you know, I need to know really what the temperature is at the infusion. I, I don't want to know what the boiler temperature is because an E61 machine will lose typically 14, 16, in centigrade when you first start making your shots, you know, so you're, you're down in the low 80s making your espresso and and then you make 10 in a row and now you're at 98 centigrade. So I can't have a conversation with someone who's gone E61 that doesn't know what the temperature is mm -hmm. at the puck. They also, I remember I had a mind-blowingly good espresso at um, Senezo. And, and the inventor guy did it and, you know, and he's like, you don't have to tell me it's great. I'm like, no, no, no. And I told him everything about it. That was great. He's like, okay. I said, what, how did you make it? And he said, well, I did a pre-induction at three bars for 12 seconds. I said, pre-induction at three bars for 12 seconds. What is that? Do you know what that is? What, you know, how much water was that? What was the flow rate? We don't know. Okay. It's like, you're right. We don't know. Okay. I mean, kudos on him for making a mind-blowing espresso. Uh, yeah. But three bars, I don't know. It, it Maybe that was line pressure where he was. Maybe that was a flow constrictor. I don't know what it was. Um, we don't have any idea how much water actually was put in there. Um, so, so in order to just avoid the frustration, um, and if you look at a form like Home Barista, they can't get very deep into talking about how to make a proper espresso because they're just lacking basic measurements. Uh, espresso machines do three things. They deliver hot water at a certain temperature, at a certain flow rate, at a certain pressure. And virtually every espresso machine out there doesn't tell you anything about flow, pressure, or temperature. So mm. how can you even start to talk about coffee 
without the top three measurements. Um, instead, people focus on time and weight because it's all they got. Mm -hmm. and, and those are weak proxies. Okay, so that's the number one reason why we don't have it there. Number two is by having everyone on the forum own the machine, there's no salesmanship. There's no, mm -hmm. one, no one saying, I'm thinking about buying this or is this a good deal? That's a separate commercial conversation. And I don't want my audience who own machines to have to act as salespeople. Uh, mm -hmm. If they want to act as salespeople, great. That's in public forums. Yeah, and I guess uh, this question is more like, I absolutely love that it's uh, more insular, but like uh, as somebody who's like, you know, in a public facing coffee shop role, um, like I, I'm honestly jealous that I, I can't uh, join yet uh, until I you know, throw down on a decent, which, you know, will happen one of these days. But uh, I mean, I'm just wondering what, um, like, you know, bringing Scott Rayo into your experience, uh, you have like his insightful tinkering, but you also have his like huge experience. And so I'm wondering what other ways like that could like, uh, there be synergy uh, between the public cafes and sort of the private home espresso that like is just at a different level. So Scott yeah. has, uh, I said another forum that it's on Basecamp with a few cafes that he thinks are really insightful people. And for example, we talked about COVID coping strategies over on that forum, but Scott's someone who gets highly paid by the hour for his consulting advice. So he's not especially interested in being on a forum. Uh, he just gets inundated. And, and also it's his living. So why sit there and spend hours? You know, he'd, he'd rather go out for dinner. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, in my case, Scott has a coffee foundation that's really second to none and, and an intuition so that whenever I might have a technical intuition or my team has a question, I can go to Scott, we can talk about it there. But often he, he's gonna err on the side of being conservative. So I'll give you an example. I'm quite interested right now in brewing tea with an espresso machine. And that's because I can control dwell time and temperature much better than I can with any sort of teapot. Any other, any other method. And so we've got a tea porter filter with a latch on it that releases a certain pressure. And I'm, uh, I, I first started to develop some recipes that were inspired by this Chinese approach of doing super small infusions for short periods of time, 30 seconds and doing several of them. And that, that's tasting just much better than kettle brewed tea. And it's incredibly repeatable, which is great. Uh, so Scott's super not interested. In, in this, uh, and it comes from having pressurized tea in the past and it tasting terrible. That was great feedback to me because as an equipment manufacturer, I have control over that. So I was able to make a pressurized tea porter filter with a very low pressure latch on it so that we don't brew our tea under pressure. It's about a half bar. But it'll take time for me to, to get far enough to get Scott interested and then blam. Uh, and, and that's how I was initially for pressure. So he, him, uh, James, and Matt Perger five years ago didn't really care about pressure. They were all about flow. And, uh, and it wasn't until they got the machines and they started making coffee that they realized that the best shots have to nail both. 
both appropriate flow and the pressure. And you lack something in the mouth if you don't have that. So uh, yeah, if you, if you join Diaspora, I mean, there's, there's a couple different threads, a couple main topics. There's a, a super brainy side, right? And that'll generate 200 messages a day, like Gagne talking about it, his, his shots that automatically adjust to grind. Then you have people saying, uh, I just got a machine and I have a SETI grinder and I can't build up more than four bar. Is my decent broken? And, and people say, no, 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 you have to grind finer. And he says, I'm on my finest grind. Oh, you have to modify your SETI, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and then all sorts of other conversations about, for example, bean of the month is a very common thing. A lot of people buy the same bean and then I'll try and dial it in together. Oh, cool. We also have roasters. So roasters with these Nespresso machines, I encourage them to sell beans through the forum and then everyone dials it in and, and the roasters learn a ton about their beans and their roasting process. Some people like Levercraft have done it over and over and, and I think the roast skills develop with that. Cool. Um, so I, I want to dig into some of this uh, like the conditional espresso that uh, you're talking about uh, Jonathan bringing up and also like secondary cut that puck compression which you mentioned in the other podcast with Scott, but um, for like these public baristas or like, you know, just like coffee shop baristas, um, what would you like, like what uh, measurements would you like them to be aware of like flow and how would you like say that they should speak about this or like what other uh, sort of variables do you think would be enlightening to like have them be aware of? Yeah, the number one would be flow. And I find it kind of frustrating that machines with flow meters don't display flow. Like the GS3 is actually any, any machine that's volumetric probably has a flow meter in it. And the flow meter just looks like a, a little Ferris wheel spinning with water going through it. And it, it ticks, little magnet ticks as the water goes through. And you can calibrate those things. The number of ticks tells you about how much water there is. And there's a few machines, few pro machines out there. The Storm, I think, shows that. Um, so the number one thing I'd say is, God, I mean, manufacturers already have the hardware to give us flow rate. Uh, I think the Mina has a flow meter in it, but I, my understanding is that when it, when the shots run, it doesn't actually tell you the flow. It just tells you the pressure, which is weird for a flow controlled machine. It might tell you the flow on the app. I'm, I'm going to qualify that. Maybe the app tells it to you, okay. which would be great if it does. Um, but given that a good espresso nails both flow and pressure. Okay. So two things. One is the pressure gauge has got to actually tell you the pressure on the puck. And La Marzocco, for example, has a kit for some of their models where they put a pressure gauge on the group head itself. You know, a pressure gauge like that is less than $10. It's, it's not mm. expensive to do. It's essentially a bike pump pressure gauge. And <clears throat> lots of lever machines have that. So, Number one thing is, please tell us what the pressure is at the, at the puck. The nine bar machine is causing people to make bad coffee because they think they're getting nine bar. It might be that their grind is too coarse and they're actually getting two bar. But they have no idea because the machine tells them nine bar. So it, not only are they getting information that's useless, they're getting information that's, it'd be better if that, that pressure gauge were not even there. And mm. they were told, oh, you don't know your pressure because instead they have a false confidence in that number. Uh, which is a lie. So the two things that I think manufacturers have got to start doing is use that flow meter 
and just give us an approximation of the flow rate. Instead of telling me pre-infusions at three bars, tell me, is that four or five, six mils per second? What is that? Because I can do basic mathematics and multiply seconds times flow. A puck will absorb about twice as much water uh, as its weight, by the way. So take a 20 gram dose, you want about 40 grams of water. So imagine that you find out your pre-infusion flow rate is eight mils per second. So <clears throat> five seconds would be perfect. And then, you know, maybe five seconds now, pause, or 10 seconds, pause. It happens that you'd actually be in the, the world of Zoko now, right? They allow you to do a five second pre-infusion up to a five second pause. And if you do a little bit of a pause, you could do it. And when I had an E61, that's exactly what I did is I, I got a scale, I opened it up without the, without the portafilter locked in to see what my flow rate was. So I had two switches, one was pump engaged, one pump not engaged. So click, pump not engaged, 10 seconds, how much water? All right, that's my pre-infusion flow rate. And it was about six mils per second. So based on that, I knew, okay, I need about seven seconds of pre-infusion for my 20 gram dose. So I do my coffee, get my timer out, click, count seven seconds, turn it off. Now I'll count out 10 seconds for that water to float. I could just look at the bottom of the puck to see when the water actually got to the bottom, then crank my coffee back on full. And my shots were just much better with that. And that was, I mean, that was a proper E61 that really had no improvement since 1961. But at least I was able to get, get flow rate and could do a proper pre-infusion because I had now control over timings and stopping things and, and pump on or off. Uh, I did not know pressure though. And that wasn't until later. <clears throat> um, temperature seems like a really simple thing, right? Lots of E61 home users take that bolt out the front and put a thermometer right in there. I don't know why every manufacturer doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. So those would be the three things that I'd love to see every machine do um and that would allow us to have a lot more of a conversation mm -hmm. i feel like i'm you know hoping to be somewhat of like a liaison between these two different spheres of espresso because uh you know just like uh, there's this cultural sort of inertia with you know normal like cafe espresso where we can't all just like up and you know switch how we do things and i wish we could but uh anyway uh, i'm curious to hear about this conditional uh, flow espresso that uh, jonathan is uh, talking about, if that's so, anything you can share. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I mentioned that five years ago, everyone was super interested in flow profiling and not so much in pressure profiling. And when <clears throat> we implemented flow profiling, and the MENA has it too, um, I think the, the Opera also has it, I believe, and uh, quickly found it to be more or less useless except during pre-infusion. And, and the reason is, is that pressure arises to the square of flow. And what that means is once your puck is compressed, small changes in flow lead to massive changes in pressure. And so you're there trying to do 2.2 mils per second, you change it to 2.4 and suddenly your puck is completely jammed and no, no espresso is coming out. Like, okay, back to 2.3 and, you know, and, and your, your pressure is like completely going all over the place. So people found it very hard to dial in flow the one place where flow is super useful is during pre-infusion because there is no pressure. The puck is absorbing all the water it's getting. So for pre-infusion, flow, flow profiling, as far as I'm concerned, is the only way to talk about pre-infusion since there is no pressure. Okay. Uh, and so Gagne took this position I have 
that flow profiling is very hard to dial in because small changes in flow cause big changes in pressure. And he thought, okay, well, what if we had some logic in there so that you might say you want 2.5 bar, but if it goes over 10 bar, give me 2.45 bar, 2.4 bar, 2.35 bar. Bring the flow down to where I get my ideal pressure. And here's the reason, because <clears throat> you've got two pressures that are kind of important with, with a shot. One is peak pressure and the other is final pressure. So your peak pressure is your puck compresses and then your pressure goes up and you end up somewhere between typically six and 10 bar is, is the happy place. And, and then your puck starts to erode and uh, typically flow rate then increases as the puck erodes and pressure goes down. Now, if you're on a nine bar machine then your pressure is gonna stay like this and your flow rate's gonna go faster and faster because you give up about 20% of your coffee mass to the cup. So imagine that means 20% less stuff resisting water so of course the flow is going to go faster. That's the simple reason why coffee speeds up because there's less coffee resisting water. So nine bar machines are always going to speed up as they go. Now, if you have a machine that can lower pressure like a lever machine or any sort of profiling machine, then your flow is not going to accelerate quite as much. For flavor reasons, you don't want it to accelerate too much. And my rule of thumb is if you start around one mil per second, which is sort of normal for medium to medium light, and you end up beyond three mils per second, you're now making lemonade. Um, <clears throat> now, the difference is really what I'm looking at, because if you start at three, go three, five, that can be fine. Um, so your final puck um, pressure is a function of, of how much flow you have and how, much, how, how badly your puck has given up the coast. So you got your flow, this is espresso. I'm going back to espresso. So pressure goes up, and then flow's going up like this. And then ideally you want a lower pressure so that your flow doesn't go off the chart, okay? Now you might decide that faster flow is, is a good flavor thing. And, and I do, I don't, I tend to find things that are totally flat flow to be a little bit dull. I like a little bit of acidity in there. So, but I don't want to go too, too much. So typically a shot that I make would be like one and a half mils per second, peaking at two and a half mils per second at the end with a pressure starting around nine, ending around six, okay? That those are, those are my rough parameters. So that's when I'm dialed in. With the Gagne shot, what he's saying is, we want to, assuming we want this ideal flow rate that does this from one and a half to two and a half, can we just program that in and get pressure to be around nine bar? Now, if you do a flow profiling shot, it's gonna be hard because small changes in dose are going to cause that pressure to go down to six bar, or to 11 bar, it's just going to leak around. So what Gagne has done is he's taken this line and he's just moving it up or down automatically based on what your peak pressure is. So your peak pressure, let's say, goes to 10 and you're here, he's going to just lower it. Okay, now your peak pressure is at nine. And then it's going to, pressure is going to do that. His flow is going to increase. So he's essentially going to dial in the appropriate start and end flow rate so that your pressure ends up right where you want it. So the best shots are where pressure and flow are in a good place. Um, so that's what you've done now. It didn't take that much logic. You just made a lot of steps, which is because there's a conditional option with espresso shots in the decent, which is do this thing, but exit if this happens. So he can say, <clears throat> do a flow of 2.5, but if the flow goes over 10, exit this. And the next step is do a 
do a flow of two four, do a flow of two three. Each one saying exit if the pressure is too high. So he, he automatically puts too much flow in and then backs off until he gets the pressure he wants. That's not giving him um, necessarily as much control as he'd like. Like this curve here, the line, the start end could get more control, but it is still a, a big change. And since I, in my experience, from nine to six bar versus nine to four bar is not worlds of difference in flavor. So I'm okay with that change, mm -hmm. but I don't want flow to go from one to two versus one to three. That's a, a huge change, one to three mils per second, because that's 50% more water flow per second. So that's what he's doing with that. And we had long thought about having more power specifically being able to program literally like in code an espresso mm -hmm. and send espresso machine and have feedback and loops and that sort of thing. But we hadn't done that feature because we hadn't thought of a good coffee reason. So Gagne saying, this is what I want to do. I saw immediately that it had a really good foundation in coffee theory. So I, I discussed it with Ray, who's the firmware programmer and also the machine inventor. And he already had a ready-made solution. So in, I don't know, six months or so, we'll have the ability to code those things. Gagne yeah. is a physicist and a coder. So you won't have to be a programmer to make an espresso. You just press Gagne shot and, nice. and you'll get a low profiled shot that automatically adjusts your grind. So, um, I mean, as far as like uh, what he's doing right now, that's just something that the Decent is already capable of. He, it, mm -hmm. He's able to change that in the GUI and everything. Yeah, yeah. So he, he made Amazing. he made a shot that um, it's easy to walk through the steps, and it does a pre-infusion, and it says go to a high flow rate, but exit if the pressure is too high. And then he's got forty, no, twenty steps that just ramp down the flow. And and so that's a shot people are making, and that seems to be really really good for lighter roasts because those are the ones that tend to fall apart the puck tends to fall apart more easily. Mm -hmm. and, and if your pressure goes under three bar, generally you're, you're making something very unpleasant to drink. Um, and so having, uh, or it's, it's three bar and your flow is way up, both are happening. So in other words, you make your shot and it just, you know, you're not making your strider, you're making a normal shot, you're 22 seconds in and it's just gushing. That's really what we want to try and avoid. And having a profile that pulls back on the pressure in order to maintain a constant flow seems to be holding our puck integrity better. Gotcha. Um, so with this uh, secondary puck compression, is that involved uh, with this at all or is that a different thing? Yeah, so secondary puck compression, what's happening is, uh, I love this because when I got an espresso machine that said 19 bar pump, I was like, ooh, that must be good. And, and of course it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because you don't make coffee at 19 bar. But nonetheless, 19 bar pump. So people have this idea that more pressure is better, but <clears throat> so your, our machine goes to 13 bar and we gave you more, more pressure because that was yet another variable that we could play with as opposed to having machines that only go to nine. <clears throat> if you do a flow shot or you just grind too finely, you, your pressure goes way up. And the, 
the, your intuition would say, if you've got, let's say this is your puck and you've got water pushing against it, the harder you push, the more mm -hmm. likely it is to pass through, right? That, that just seems to make sense. And certainly as you rise up, you know, from two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine bar, water goes faster and faster um, out the other end. But when you're actually able to plot flow rate, you see the strange thing happening, which is right around 10 bar, the more water you put in, the less comes out. So the more, the more pressure increases and less comes out until around 10 and a half bar where you almost completely jam the whole thing. So we've got some theories. We don't have any actual observation as to what's going on, but we think the cellulose is essentially bending, the cellulose in the beans at that pressure. And so you've got arbitrary shaped bits of coffee grounds in your puck that are all fitting together. And then around 10 half bar, they actually start to bend and really closely pack. And the reason we think that that's happening is that if you drop from 10 half back to nine bar, your flow rate picks up again, and then you go back to 10 half bar and it compresses again. So you can do this several times. So it really seems like hmm. this compress release thing is, is happening as opposed to a permanent change to the beans. What this means for coffee making is that if you go above this pressure, you largely stop flow. Now there might be reasons why it tastes good. And I know at least one third wave cafe who's making a drink, that's right in Korea, with a, with a super expensive single origin for doing 13 bar shots. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, but I've also had four bar shots with ultralights that tasted great. So mm -hmm. I think all rules are off. Uh, so I don't want to take it off the table, but we've got a couple features coming. One <clears throat> quite soon with normal flow profiling without being a technical genius, you'll just be able to you'll set a maximum pressure. So if you do a flow profiled shot and you say, I want this flow, but don't go above nine and a half bar, It'll give you that flow and then automatically back off the flow if the pressure goes over that ceiling. So that I think is going to make flow profile shots more useful, but that still won't do what Cogni does. Because bear in mind, if I say you want three mils per second and it hits nine bar and I give you two, it's not going to know to adjust the whole curve based on what this peak pressure is. That's what Cogni is doing is reset. He's moving the whole flow curve for the whole shot based on what peak pressure is. Did I answer your question? I think so, yeah. It's, uh, it, I mean, when you were talking about it with Scott, you said basically like, nobody's talking about this yet and they should be. And so I was like, I, I need to be somebody that's asking about this. Um, it, some other things that you mentioned, uh, you brought up the water pump, and, or not the water pump, the uh, water hammer. And uh, when I heard that term, I was wondering if anybody's enticed to go for that method just because it has a cool name that you've given it? <laughs> so if you've got most traditional Italian machines don't even have pre-infusion mm -hmm. and unless they've got some sort of cavity or something for making the water hit the coffee puck in a more gentle way, then they slam that coffee puck. And when you've got an ultra dark bean it's really oily there's a lot of oil coming out of it it's very very dense it tends to survive that and in fact what happens is you get this coffee puck and it, and it just instantly you, you hit it with i'll give you a number 12 mils per second 
that's a sort of typical Lamazoko commercial machine. We'll, we'll hit that coffee puck with 12 mils per second. And so it instantly compresses and, and hyper compresses. And what comes out is at the beginning of the shot, super thick mayonnaise stuff, right? Really mm -hmm. tense emulsion. And for fans of that kind of chocolate cream style of espresso, especially if you do a ristretto, that technique works really well. And there's, there's one other thing you can do too, which is <clears throat> we've learned about headspace and how important that is. You've got a coffee puck and then you've got a shower screen on it. Because the advisors to these Nespresso were all light and ultralight fans, we, and we're also measuring all the time with refractometers, we did design choices that made those style of beans taste better. So that meant less channeling, higher extraction levels. And what we found was that giving that puck water and time so that it could swell, gave us less channeling, higher extractions, better flavor, okay? And Socratic Coffee did tests like this. They varied the headspace above the puck. They didn't, I don't know if they say what kind of beans they used. I'd be very surprised if they're dark roast fans. And they got higher extractions, better coffee. So they found that more headspace gave them better coffee. But what we have found since then, because there are fans of Decent who actually are fans of the super thick, ultra dark style, and they couldn't get that with the Decent machine. So they started hardware hacking to figure out what's going on there. And what they found was that preventing puck swelling gives you a thicker shot. So instead of letting that puck gently swell and evenly wet like this, and then compressing it with pressure, they get that puck pushed hard against the shower screen and then they put water onto that puck really fast. And so that puck is unevenly wet, but super resistive to water at the beginning. And so what comes out is just, you know, mayonnaise. And it appears that the faster you hit your puck with water, not not only the thicker your shot is, but the, the longer it'll, it'll um, last and the coarser you have to grind, okay? So something else we found with our machine was that because we were pre-infusing gently and evenly, everyone had to grind finer because otherwise it would just gush. Mm -hmm. So if you pre-infuse evenly, when your pressure rises, the water will come through very quickly and easily. And also you let that puck expand. So uh, an aspect of these Nespresso shots is the pucks tend to be quite sludgy, quite wet. And that's largely because the grind is very fine. And the finer the grind, the greater the water holding capacity of that material. Okay. Um, and in fact, I talked to uh, an expert on the MENA and he said, yeah, their pucks are wet as well. And they have the ability to do slow pre-infusions as well. So that's what I see there. So water hammer is something that vibratory machines are less good at mm -hmm. because they can't slam the puck with water. And actually I would say the best at slamming the puck with water would be lever machines, even better than a nine bar machine because you can lift it and then go whack mm -hmm. and just slam the water onto that puck and get a super thick shot. Uh, so once again, lever machines, by virtue of it all being in the bicep, uh, are giving you the most control. Interesting, okay. 
Um, so we're getting up here on an hour and I don't want to take up too, too much of your morning, uh, but I just have a few more quick questions to go through. Um, in terms of like uh, the technical stuff, like the physics and the coding and the programming and all that and data collection, um, what sort of like curriculum would you envision uh, like a barista looking at to be you know, most versed in this, if any? Um. <laughs> Everything I've seen out of Brewster Hustle, I thought was really good. So that, that's the first thing I'd say is that Brewster Hustle's online courses are just great. And I, I don't think I've ever read anything from Matt Perger where I rolled my eyes. <laughs> so whereas a lot of people, probably myself included, have pushed what we know we didn't know enough to say what we're saying. Mm -hmm. So, especially in the era of COVID, you want to be doing things online. So that's probably where I'd say, um, boy, for baristas, I don't know how you're going to manage to progress without, without a decent. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mean this to turn into a sales pitch. I, I, it's not at all the thing. It's just that it's like driving a car with earplugs in and no speedometer. You just don't have any feedback. You don't. Mm -hmm. And some super talented baristas have made amazing espressos. Can they do it consistently? That's real hard. And most mm -hmm. people don't even do that level. Um, especially if you've got a decent and you've got, and you're roasting, that interaction's super interesting because you can do roasts that have some undesirable characteristics and then work on recipes that hide those or really express things that you hadn't really expected. Like, you know, roasting is all about increasing solubility and creating typically new flavors through caramelization. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't have to worry so much about solubility because you can work on the recipe to extract things, so this is one of the things that's really challenging about coffee is coffee, the, the coffee bean does two things. It's a physical medium for impeding water and it also releases flavor, right? And something like tea doesn't have that. Tea just mm -hmm. releases And so we have to strike this balance and it's super hard. So when you're roasting, what you do to the bean is gonna release flavors, but it's also gonna affect that pressure resistance curve and how it, ch how it channels and all those things. And if you've got a machine like the decent where you can have uh, pauses and variable flow rates and and you can adjust your pressure curves based on how the coffee is physically behaving then you can focus on the flavor development of the bean and that i think is really rewarding because making a puck not fall apart is a very frustrating thing mm -hmm. yeah um, uh, you also mentioned moving to Seattle, um, because this is, you know, one of the two places that coffee engineers, uh, find themselves. And, you know, as more of a barista myself, I, I'm familiar with the, like, barista scene in Seattle, but I was wondering if you could sort of paint a picture of what the, uh, coffee engineering scene is like. So machines are either made in Italy or in Seattle, and Seattle had Slayer, Sinezo, and La Marzocco headquarters all really close to each other like a 10 minute drive from each other. And 
you know, really just top people. The other thing about Seattle is it's technical home to Amazon and Microsoft. So you've got some cross fertilization. And I've always thought if there's going to be a comparative decent emerge, most likely to come from Seattle. Uh, that's, um, it might be that our market size is just not big enough to get investors super excited. Right? Don't forget Decent is a mom and pop operation. It's my girlfriend, mm -hmm. myself, her mother are the investors. That's not exactly major Silicon Valley venture capital. Right. Uh, and that's because it's, I'm not sure the market is there for a Airbnb of espresso machines IPO. <clears throat> um, so I don't see that much cross fertilization other than the fact that Seattle is a good engineering town and the quality of life is quite good. People are outdoorsy. Obviously, there's a lot of coffee consumption. But, you know, Senezo and Slayer are products of singular individuals. And Slayer especially didn't want to listen to other people. And that's why they came up with stuff that was so out there, mm -hmm. so, so unique. And Senezo found a really nice niche and exploited the, the hell out of it. La Marzocco being in Seattle is more of a product of Starbucks than anything else. It's because La Marzocco's sales in the U.S. because of Starbucks uh, allowed La Marzocco USA to take over the La Marzocco worldwide. So I don't know that it has much to do with engineering. Gotcha. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know how it's a mom and, or mom and pop operation and uh, it makes me think of like uh, like you know just skin in the game and sort of this uh, like safe to fail versus fail safe. And it seems like you wanted to make sure that this was going to be um, you know, successful. And so I'm curious just um, you know, how, how you think about that, how you ensure that something will be successful. Uh, yeah. It's not pretty, but you basically nail yourself to that cross. Um, and what I mean by that is it, it, you just do whatever it takes and Two years ago, we had a product that was pretty good, but not selling. And we were selling a little less than 30 machines a month, so one a day. We weren't going to go bust, but we weren't going to pay back the money we put into it either. And, and we've worked seven-day weeks for four years, and we were just burnt out. And I knew, you know, our friends were like, so anyone interested in buying you? And... Uh, having had conversations with Italian companies, I knew that that was not going to happen, nor do I want it to happen. But when you're really burnt out, sure, you just look, oh, just let me out. Just sell the company. Just screw it. I, I, I can't deal with it anymore. So two years ago, Bugs and I left Hong Kong and went to live in London and, uh, and then in the country for a good amount of time. And then COVID happened. And we got healthy again and got reinvigorated and also we were able to work on the technology side and get the product really to a good place so that a year after we'd left that was the version 1.3 when everything started to come together and once those teething problems were solved and we got our production up COVID happened demand happened the product is right and now we're in a good place and we're not burn out shells of human beings um, but I, I really understand what it's like to be a coffee shop owner, sign that you know, five-year lease, say, and you're selling 150 cups a day, 
And, you know, if you end this, they take your home. If you keep doing it, they take your home. You know, and so you just, you just put in the hard hour weeks and make the coffees in order to get through it because you can't do anything more than to give of yourself. And then COVID hits and then doesn't matter what you do, you're screwed. Uh, we're really, we just got lucky that when we burn out, we had A, the, the ability to leave. Um, the things didn't go that well when we left. And that the product got to a good state and the demand was created through COVID. So, you know, we're the coffee shop that got lucky. Um, I guess uh, the last thing I'll ask you is, uh, you know, I, I know there are tons of smart people in coffee. I mean, not tons, but, uh, you know, there's Hugh Scott, there's Vince Fidelli, uh, Jonathan. Are way, there any... way more smart people than that. I... <laughs> who, who else is in this sort of network of intelligences? No, they're just... I have been, I, I've been continually struck how I encounter somebody who's got no data, but they've got, they've got some roasting and a, you know, nine bar machine and they make something truly spectacular. And I roll up with my high tech little machine and I can't make the coffee that's better than their person. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's astonishing that they can do that. So there are a lot of really talented people. In fact, that's why I left the restaurant industry in my 20s was because there were too many people who were gonna give their life to this for virtually no money or recognition and had talent. Um, I didn't wanna play a game with people like that. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, Rayo is, is a smart guy, but he also, he recognizes, he's got clients that are, that are super smart too. And he's put, me on roadshows to meet them. So for me, that, that's the biggest thing is I, I, um, I, I'm a musician, a bad one, but musician nonetheless. <laughs> and young, I used to be a guitar tech. And that's how I got to meet musicians was by fixing their guitars. And that's what I see myself as right now as well, is, is I'm the espresso tech. Uh, I'm meeting people like you and other people who are out there actually making coffee, actually buying raw ingredients and serving drinks. And I'm the guy trying to give them gear to help them express the talent that they've got. Um, and then the only thing I can do here is to run a business to make sure that our gear is profitable and we don't go away and we can support them. We can give them the tools they need. Um, so that that's what I love about coffee is just how many really talented people there are. Uh, what's been happening recently with Decent is that people who are not in coffee, but who see what Decent's about, specifically technical and open, joining in and then becoming really absorbed in this project and contributing, right? So someone like Damien, who came up with the Londinium recipe, which is the best lever recipes I've ever, I've ever seen, is not a coffee guy. He, really just he got into this because his wife was complaining about Nespresso and he wanted to give her a better cup of coffee. And he mm. also the Damien skin, which is the most popular geeky interface, the decent machine. So that's the most exciting thing is creating this ecology of people who are, I'm just the community facilitator, which is great because that means that I get involved in something that's way bigger than anything I could have ever done.
Cool. Um, as a quick little uh, you know, tidbit, uh, a friend of mine who works for Ableton, his boss bought a decent, and he has some sort of uh, silly combination of his espresso machine and audio gear, and I don't know what he's doing with it. I saw that there's a GitHub for Desire, like you know, uh, as in decent. Um, I'm not sure what he's trying to get at, but uh, is there anything outlandish that you can imagine doing where you're oh, yeah. playing yeah, so the, the decent with the piano? <laughs> we want the machine to be hackable, meaning like it's extendable, but for safety reasons, you, you can't let people like, you know, change the boiling point of water or something, so it explodes. So the way the machine is designed is that it's self-controlled. It, 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 you give it what you want it to do, and then it, it goes and tries and does that. But then the communications or how you get commands come by a little port in the back, um, which is using what's called the Arduino standards. Arduino is a little hackable Linux computers. And that's a, a, a currently a little Bluetooth computer. So, so the decent espresso machine is a computer, roughly the power of like an iPhone 6. And, and then it has a little fast, essentially think of it as a USB cable to a little, another computer that's this big in the back of the machine. And that, can, that little computer can be totally hacked. You can do anything you want to it. And what Desire is, is they took that, this is Reed, uh, Reed Taylor. He took our chip out and it, it's meant to be removed. You don't even need to take, open the machine to remove it. You just remove it, you plug something else in. So he's plugged something else in, which is another computer. Then he plugs the Bluetooth module into his computer. And now he's got USB and Wi-Fi um, and a bunch of live libraries talking to these espresso machine at a super speed, super fast speed. So that is coming soon so that the app will run fully fledged on Linux, Windows, and Mac, but it also enables things like robotic control. There's a few people who've modded their machines to turn it into the world's best super automatic. And that's quite interesting because we've also published all the hardware designs. So you can download our hardware designs, tinker with it so that it works better with a robot, 3D print something, take four bolts out, put it back in, and now you've got a version of the V1 that works well with the robot arm. So I know at least three people working on that, three separate projects. Uh, I know someone who's working on a crazy blingy lighting thing. So what she's done is taken the thing out of the back too plugged her own intermediate computer in, plugged the Bluetooth in, and then she puts lights all over the inside. And essentially the LEDs are telling you the status of the machine. So it's flow rate, pressure, temperature in real time, as, as well as pumps going and everything. So it's super cool to look at, but it's also information. Um, we've got other people who are elevating their machines so that they can put full batch brewers underneath them. Mm. And we're going to try and make that more formalized, like have a replacement leg set that works well. So the software and the hardware is hackable and people run and do crazy stuff and they don't have to ask permission. And sometimes if it's a small market, they just start selling stuff and, and offering it. Like people have done cup rails, for example, lighting kits, uh, cup warmers, all that stuff is for sale in the third party market. And other times like, the Wi-Fi and USB, we thought that was big enough that we worked with the guy who originally did it, then we're gonna commercialize it. So that will just be something that comes from us that there's Wi-Fi and USB support from the decent. So those are some of the things coming. 
Um, last question I'll squeeze in. That's kind of silly again. Um, you know, it, like AlphaFold is like a recent development with like uh, AI protein folding and stuff. Uh, do you envision that there could ever be uh, some sort of extra potency to decent with machine learning or uh, you know some sort of powerful AI? Yeah, so we already have machine learning. It's, it's, it's at times we've turned it on and it's currently off because the thing about machine learning is it tends to make things that don't work very well work better, right? It, it fixes your mistakes. And so we, we had machine learning in there to try and get temperature to be more accurate. So when you put hot water into a puck, the puck is room temperature. So you put, let's say, 95 Celsius water into a 20 Celsius puck, you're down around 60 Celsius immediately. And machines don't show you that. So people don't seem to realize that the start of their infusions are actually down in the 60 to 80 range at the beginning. And worse yet, if you're running on a machine that cools the water a lot through the group head. <clears throat> so, so the way to compensate that is, I think, through temperature profiling. So that you take your room temperature pocket 20 and you put 98 Celsius water in for a few seconds. And maybe, in fact, you heat the portafilter in the group higher than your goal temperature so that you can come back down. Uh, as an aside, um, I uh, had one of the ZPM prototype machines and it made really good coffee. This is years ago. And the guy, the programmer on it, he actually did this. He would blast full power on the machine for about five seconds without, the, without water so that he had this big temperature curve. Now he didn't know why it tasted better. He just said it tastes better. And it wasn't so much there that I realized he's doing temperature profiling. He's putting ultra high water temperature at the beginning and probably getting the overall infusion temperature up higher. So <clears throat> we took off the machine learning feature because what we were doing with machine learning previously is that you'd pull a shot and we would see that it started at, let's say, 85 Celsius. And so we'd automatically adjust the input water temperature to bring up to 87, 88. Each time you made the same shot, it would look at the previous shot and adjust the temperature curve for you to try and achieve your goal. Because the goal of the decent is not the water we put in the puck. The goal of the decent is the temperature of the infusion. You tell us you want an 88 Celsius infusion, we will try to get you there. Physics preventing us. Um, so at the moment we took off the AI stuff because we found that our temperature stability was not as good as it could be. And the AI was essentially fixing the temperature stability. So now our temperature stability is quite a bit better. And what I did is I put a feature in to use temperature profiling so that maybe you want your temperature to do this. That's what most machines do is actually that. But if you don't, if you'd rather do that, that's what the default profile does. So now it's an explicit thing. I am nervous about adding machine learning until we know that the machine is making decisions for you that you want. Because maybe you actually want to go cool to hot or hot to cool. And if the machine learning prevents that, that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, so we could. Um, I guess one of the last things about the machine is it is not Internet of Things machine. Internet of Things means a device that you use and it's connected to the internet. The decent is not connected to the internet. The decent mm -hmm. is a coffee machine that has an app that is talking one-to-one -one and is not necessarily on Wi-Fi at all. 
And that's for privacy reasons and also reliability reasons, right? Things that connect to the internet tend to be unreliable. And also, I don't necessarily know what privacy invasion will happen if I start uploading all my copies to the internet. Will you, for example, know when I wake up and when I'm not at home? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I, I, I'm quite nervous about that. <clears throat> so we're not in that super cool trend. <laughs> but that has meant that we do not have big data either. So people are not uh, naturally uploading every shot to the cloud. That is, in fact, one of the extensions that someone has written that probably next week will start being available. So if you want to choose to share every special you made with a bunch of other people so that big data analysis can happen of it, cool. But I want you to make that choice. I don't want to share your data for you or have you opt out of it. Very cool. Well, I appreciate that you, uh, you know, have all the thought going into that. Um, well, yeah, I, I think uh, we can end this here. This is a really interesting conversation for me. and. Uh, uh, for anybody else who's watching, uh, you should really check out John's Zoom calls that are on YouTube uh, about Blooming Espresso and Olajes and how to dial in and stuff. Super interesting. Um, is there an, another place you'd want to direct anybody to? Uh, DecentEspresso.com, is that the website? Yeah, so obviously you Google our name and that's fine. And if you don't have a machine, probably most people watching, there's a link that says join the conversation. And uh, I'm on forums all over the planet in a couple different languages thanks to translation software and happy to chat anywhere where you're interested in chatting. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me, John. This has been cool. Um, Good talk to you in the future. Thanks. Adios. Yeah.